As you take your seats, I invite you to turn in your copies of God's holy and inspired word back to the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew chapter 5, where we will uh, be looking at verses 33 through 37. Before I read from Matthew 5, I'm going to read a couple of verses from Leviticus 19 to try to help set the context for what Jesus is saying to us here in this portion of the Sermon on the Mount. The title of the sermon today is Embodying Christ's Integrity in Heart and in Conduct. You shall not swear or you shall not lie to one another. You shall not swear by my name falsely and so profane the name of your God. I am Yahweh. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from the evil one. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we ask for your help today to open ourselves to the words of Jesus Christ here. And protect us, Lord, from the temptation that is before us. When we consider a topic like this, it is so easy for us, Lord, to think about all the different ways that we have been harmed by others because they did not have the integrity to live out the things that they said. Instead, Lord, help us to allow your word to keep its focus on ourselves, to consider how we have have not embodied the integrity of Christ, so that we might be humbled under your gracious hand, emptied of our pride, that we might be filled with your grace. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, many do not know this about me, but from an extremely, an extremely early age, going back as least to probably three or four, I was a very advanced practicing philosopher and theologian. I knew that if I wanted to really confirm something that I was saying, that I would invoke, cross my heart, and hope to die, stick a needle in my eye. Now, what many don't know that I and my friends were clearly aware of at four was that we understood that if you wanted to really secure the truthfulness of what you said, 
that you, like God, should confirm that through a self-maledictory oath. Philosophy, theology from the beginning. We're all philosophers and theologians when it comes to that, isn't it? And that is because every single one of us are aware of an extremely ever-present struggle that exists in every relationship that you and I have. It is a problem that goes back to the very first relationships that were taking place in the Garden of Eden, and that is the problem of wanting to nuance God's Word in order that we might be able to find a loophole. And when we get caught, that we would learn how to blame someone else. And hence, from the very beginning of the fall, All of mankind has wrestled with this problem of integrity. How do I, or how do I become someone with integrity? And how do I know if the person that I'm dealing with, how do I know if he or she is a person of integrity? From the very beginning, when Satan introduced that question, has God really said. When Adam and Eve believed that and acted because of it, every relationship functions at times and in varying degrees with that same question. When my wife said, when my husband said, Did he really mean it? You see, we deal with these questions of integrity all the time. How do I trust my neighbor? Especially when I know my own heart is bent towards wanting to nuance the truth and wanting to provide wiggle room So if something starts to not go my way, I can have an easy exit out of what I have said. What we have been looking at through the Sermon on the Mount is that this is exactly what Jesus is attempting to address with regards to the influence that the scribes and Pharisees have had on God's people. Because the righteousness of the Pharisees that Jesus says our righteousness must surpass, their righteousness is a righteousness of trying to make the law more easily doable. They want to make the law, that the, the parts that you just can't make easily doable, you just redefine that, those portions as not being important. And what you do is you create practices and interpretations that provide you loopholes, wiggle room, and the ability to sound spiritual, the ability to look spiritual, all while hedging your bets behind the scenes. One of the practices where we see this so evidently, even right now within our own culture, is this, this reticence to enter into marriage and instead opt to live together. 
You see, they, they want the benefits of, of the relationship. They, they want to experience that security that can come from a, a, from a committed relationship and, and all the other blessings and benefits that come in that setting. But they don't want to commit themselves to the point that it's not easy for them to get out of it. Now, this is exactly what Jesus is attempting to address. And what the Pharisees and the scribes, what, what their practice was, what their teaching was, which led to normal everyday people practicing their, their interpretations, what it would look like is that they would say, in order to confirm something that they were saying to sound spiritual and authoritative in what they were doing, they would, they would swear by the altar of the temple. Sounds pretty good, doesn't it? I mean, the altar of the temple, what, 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 what is the altar of the temple? Well, it's one of the places that God manifests his presence, right? That's where the sacrifice is offered, right? So by the altar of the temple, right? Cross my heart, hope to die. Stick a needle in my eye, right? So by the altar of the temple, and then they would make their declaration. Now, here's the thing. When I was a kid, I knew that I could invoke the cross my heart, right? Because all of our friends, we were all operating with this same understanding, right? You could say something that had one level of meaning. But if you follow it up with, cross my heart, hope to die, stick a needle in my eye, that just, that just really, now I'm being very serious. Well, what if I said, cross my heart, hope to, hope to die, may I be crushed by a huge rock falling from the sky, right? You could escalate it, right? And you could keep escalating and keep escalating because at our heart, we all knew, even as children, that when we said, cross my heart, hope to die, stick on my eye, we knew we, weren't, we had no intention of sticking anything in eyes and we had no intention of dying. But we all had agreed to play the same game. So what did the scribes and Pharisees do? Well, well, I swear by the altar. You know what that meant? I swear by my gift on the altar. Oh, now we got serious. You see what they're doing? They're playing games. They're playing language games. And they're trying to act as if you know what, I can really sound spiritual and, and look like a leader if I use the right spiritual verbiage. I'm, I'm going to swear on the altar of the temple while they know that by using that formulation that they have created all kind of room for themselves to back out of whatever they said. And the other people who are part of the game, they know the code they know the double speak. And so they knew that they could say by the altar, or they knew they could say by my gift on the altar. And they knew who to say what to what person. 
Because they knew that they could say, I swear by, by the altar, they could say that to someone that they knew didn't know the code, and they would use that formulation with the person who didn't know what they were really saying. Now, what do we call that? It's taking advantage of somebody. That's, that's preying upon their trust. Right? If I say to my, if, if, if I say to another kid my age, cross my heart, hope to die, stick a needle in my eye, right? You know, I, I presume that they know what that means, and then I can take advantage of the meaning that they give to the words I just said, even though in my own smaller little friend group, we may have changed the phrase to escalate it to something that we knew was really important. You see what's happening there? And so if, I want, if I'm going to a lay person, right, and look, look, pastors are the worst at doing this. But I can go to a lay person, and if I want to sound spiritual and authoritative in order to force my will on them to get them to just agree with me, I will say things in all kinds of fancy theological verbiage. Because I know that if I just push them into a corner uh, with my vocabulary, that I'll get the respect, you know, that I want that I actually don't want to earn. Versus a minister who will come and sit down with you and spend time explaining things in such a way that they are revealing their own accountability to you not just your accountability to them. Now, pastors, we're the worst at doing this because we can get away with it. But the reality is, everyone in this room has done this. And everyone in this room will do it again. Because it's part of the problem that doesn't go back to the scribes and Pharisees. It is a problem that goes back to Adam and Eve. So this is what Jesus is dealing with. People who recognize the, the spiritual authority that can be invoked by saying, well, I say da-da-da and I swear by the altar. Or I swear by Jerusalem. Or I swear by creation, right? You can start filling in the blanks. And there were all kind of different phrases that could be used where the simple message was, I'm invoking something, you know, that I'm invoking God. Where God is my witness, fill in the blank. But they were doing so knowing that at times when they were invoking God, they were doing so knowing that they weren't going to actually keep what they were saying. And that they, would, they had done it in a way that there was a loophole to get them out of it. That's what's going on here. And so Jesus says, look, instead of operating that way, do you remember what the Old Testament says? Where, where it says, you know, do not lie to one another where it says, do not swear by my name falsely. 
You see, what, what, the, what the scribes and Pharisees had done was they had created a practice that sounded good, that looked good on paper. The problem is it was in direct contradiction to the clear teaching of the Old Testament. And so once again, Jesus is correcting a false interpretation and application of the Old Testament by saying, here is what is truly intended. And what is that? What is truly intended is that if you are someone who has taken the name of Yahweh, meaning if you are someone who has accepted the terms, the promises, and the responsibilities of the covenant, then you are to reflect the God whose name you have taken. What Jesus is not saying here is don't take oaths because oaths are in and of themselves sinful or problematic. Because God, our Heavenly Father, has used this very formulation with us. What I did with the assurance of pardon, and you can go back and look through that in the earlier portion of the liturgy, is show the connection that the writer of Hebrews uh, is making in Hebrews 6 with the the covenant promises of God going back to Genesis chapter 15 and Genesis chapter 22, in which God, who had already promised to Abram, if you will leave Ur, if you will follow me, I will take you to Cana, I will give you a new land, and I will make you the father of so many offspring, it'll be more than the sand of the seashore. Genesis 12. Well, by Genesis 15, some decades have passed. And where are we on, on, the, on, the, on the tally count of how many of those, those, uh, those, sands, uh, those uh, sand kernels have come about? Yeah, do it again, Daniel. A goose egg. That's right. God made this promise. A couple of decades have gone by. Not only does he not have so many you can't count, he doesn't have any. You can't count them because they don't exist. And so he's like, oh, God, okay, you remember that deal <laughs> that, that you had offered and I had believed you and I, I'm here now, but I've been like, you know, Walking and walking and walking and, you know, remember all that? Um, What if, just spitballing here, what if we let Eleazar, well, well, yeah, for you, my right-hand man, right? Right hand my way, right hand your way. What if we let Eleazar be the first and we'll just, you know, we'll go off of him? And and Yahweh in, in gentleness comes to him, but I haven't made my promise to Eleazar made it to you and i'm going to do what i say numbers 30 god is not a man that he should lie nor a son of man that he should not keep his word he's like i'm gonna do it just because your wife can't have children and just because you're you know really really old doesn't mean i can't accomplish what i'm going to do because i made you i made you out of nothing 
And so he says, I'm going to do this. But he doesn't just tell Abram, hey, I've said I'll do it. Get off my back, right? He doesn't say that. He says, I have said this, and I'm going to do it. And so here, let me help you trust me. And what he does is he has Abram take all these different animals. He has them cut them in half. He has, has them um, uh, uh, arranged into a pathway where there are split bodies on each side of the pathway with all the fun stuff in, in, in between. Right? This is a covenant ratification ceremony in the Old Testament. But it's not just any old covenant ratification. It is a very special type. And, and the way that it would work is in, in the Old Testament or, or back in the ancient Near East, if two parties were going to enter into this, this type of arrangement, they would do all this, and then the two parties would walk through the pieces together. They would walk through the blood and the guts together. And the point was that they were each saying, I will be faithful to my side of this arrangement, and if I'm not then what has happened to the animals can happen to me. Cross my heart, hope to die. Cut me in half and let my blood and guts come out, right? It doesn't rhyme, it's not as good. But that's the point. Now, what happens is God causes Abram to fall asleep. What he's doing is he's revealing to Abram that Abram has zero power in and of himself to accomplish any of this. And the promise of the covenant, the promise of a heritage, the promise of a lineage that would be more than the sand on the seashore was never up to the physical abilities or possibilities of his body. It was always going to be dependent on what God was going to do. So he, he shows Abram what is the true situation of his life in that he is rendered powerless. And then Yahweh, in the form of a smoking torch, is the only party that walks through or, or that moves through the covenant ratification ceremony. If I don't do what I have promised, this will happen to me. Now, who can God appeal to to make sure that happens? Who's bigger than God? Who's more powerful than God? Who's stronger than God? Right? So what does God do? He appeals to himself. So secure is the promise of the gospel. That this, I'm going to swear to you by myself on the basis of my own existence. A self-maledictory oath. And the writer of Hebrews tells us that when we are struggling with the realities of this life, when we're struggling with the realities of the sin in our own hearts, when we are struggling with disobedience, when we are struggling with not loving God and not loving our neighbor well, when we're struggling because the realities of sin are harming us, 
whether through, through disease or through death. What he tells us is when we are in those moments and when we are tempted to look to something other than God to fulfill his promises, he calls us to the God who has secured his promises with blood. Because the oath-taking God is an oath-keeping God in which the blood of his Son was shed to guarantee the promises that he made from the very beginning of creation. And Jesus Christ, though he was sinless, voluntarily went to the cross, shed his blood, and died to secure for you and for me that God can be trusted because his word is sure. God is a God of integrity. And the cross and resurrection show us that, and they reinforce that to us day after day after day. And what it means to be a people who have benefited from this self-malediction of Jesus Christ on the cross is that we are called through the grace of Jesus Christ, through the empowerment of the Holy Spirit, where Christ has taken up residence within our hearts, what he has said to us is you now are called by the grace of God and the new life you have in my resurrection, you are called to embrace the moral law of God without loopholes and without contradictions and without nuance. We are to embody the integrity of Jesus Christ. What Jesus is not saying here, he's not saying don't take an oath. He's not saying oaths are sinful. What he's saying is if you're going to take one, let your yes be yes and let your no be no. And be the kind of person who lives with and embodies such integrity that you don't have to say, cross my heart. Because people will interact with you on the basis of your character. What Jesus is trying to, what the, what, what, what the, what the Pharisees are trying to do is they're trying to act like sometimes during the day you live in the presence of God and at other times you don't. But Psalm 139 is very clear. There is nowhere we can go that God is not there. Not even darkness, not even back into the womb, not even death. What Jesus is saying is that if you're going to be one of my followers, then let everything you say be said as one who sees himself or herself 
under oath. That everything you say, you are saying as if you have a stack of Bibles under your right hand. And beloved, what Jesus is telling here is the warfare for the integrity of your character is fought out in every little yes or no that you say. And so as God's people, let us cultivate that new life we have in Christ as those who have not only been the beneficiaries of the integrity of God, but as those who get to also serve as witnesses to his integrity through our integrity so that the words that we utter in witness to the love of God and the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ cannot be called into question because we are also known for trying to fudge things and use loopholes and get out of things. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the reality of of his presence within us, that is our cross, my heart. And so the oath on which our existence and our new life and our pursuit of new obedience is an oath that stands upon the guarantee of what God has voluntarily chosen to do for us and what Jesus has secured for us forevermore. And his integrity is gifted to us, and that is what empowers us to strive by grace to embody his integrity in what we say and what we think, so that indeed our yes can be yes, and our no can be no. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, help us to be willing to let your word run through our hearts and to serve as a mirror that will help us ask ourselves and to ask you to do the difficult work of searching us because you know us and revealing to us the things that you know that we are either ignorant of or we have chosen to ignore or that we are choosing to suppress. Reveal these things, Lord, to us, not so that we have to live mired in guilt and shame, but that we would live in the forgiveness of Christ so that we would learn the details of what Jesus has already accomplished for us so that we would offer these new details up to you Not because you didn't know them. You knew them before we even had one breath. We do this, Lord, because you are a loving Father that is ready to wipe away our our tears, that you are ready to give us a hug of admonishment, and you are ready not to strike us down, but to lift us up and to help us, by your grace, strive for new obedience. And so, Lord, help us to examine our integrity, 
and impress upon us how vital it is as witnesses of Christ that our character and that our words be known for truth. It is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.